Let's dive into our text today and look to see what God has to say to us from Luke 19, starting in verse 28, and we're going to be going all the way to verse 40. And it says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and, and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, on entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent the very stones would cry out. Well, this week, uh, it ushers us into Holy Week, right? So this is the last week of Lent, the final week leading up to Easter and celebration of the resurrection of our Lord. And, and this is one of the most exciting times in the yearly Christian calendar, right? As, as we get ready to celebrate what the whole of the Christian religion hangs upon, this one moment, this one period in time hangs upon this Day, this week, a historic and dramatic week where Christ, the Son of God, entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, only to be betrayed by one of his closest followers, tried and found guilty upon false witness, beaten, mocked, hung upon a cross to die, and as we will celebrate next week, he resurrected from the dead three days later. Amen. And what I find so fascinating and exciting and awesome about these weeks is probably what a lot of people find really boring and dull about a week like Holy Week. Because what we're actually celebrating this week has been celebrated for thousands of years. The same tradition, the same focus, the same thought, year after year for the last 2,000 years. Christians have taken this week to go back in time and focus on a particular moment, a particular event in history and in time. And instead of progressing and moving forward, we actually take some time to stop and go back. It kind of feels like a jerk, I think, some, at some level in our culture. A little archaic, a little old school to stop and go backwards, but isn't that kind of what Lent is about? These 40 days leading up to this moment where we stop with some of the uh, normalities of life, the things we do day in and day out, and we maybe even fast or abstain from those things in order to focus upon one thing, that we stop looking a bunch of places and doing a bunch of things, and instead for 40 days, our focus in our lives and everything we do is set upon one moment, one time, one place, the cross of Jesus Christ. 
But our, our culture doesn't really like that. We tend to think that we would know better than they would know some 2,000 years ago, right? That, that we have it a little bit more figured out. That we have a better solution to today's problems. And so we have things like the new diets that are better for helping with being overweight or new technology that's better for dealing with our products or for for dealing with inefficiency or lack of productivity, right? Or today, maybe more particularly, we think that there's going to be a new or better presidential candidate that will come and make things better for us in our government, right? Or economically. And so we're always progressing, always moving forward. And maybe you're not Uh, You are conservative in your theology and even politically, but even still, you're still looking forward to the next best medical practice that's better for treating some kind of disease, or maybe even at its smallest level, it's not a thought, but a better product for fixing things like frizzy hair, right? Um, We're always looking for today's problems to be fixed, and we have a better answer. That's the way our culture moves. That's the way it goes forward. But this new new thought, this new progression that we have isn't actually new to us today. In fact, this was going on some thousands upon thousands of years ago as the people of Israel came to want to elect a king for the very first time. You see, as we come to 1 Samuel, there's this moment in history where up to this point, the people of Israel had experienced probably some of the most amazing and miraculous things that had happened to date in and among their midst. They had um, seen a mass exodus of millions of people from the hand of a tyrant, and as they're leaving, they watch Pharaoh's army, this tyrant's army, destroyed in the midst of a sea that was split open so that they could walk through it, right? Right? And then they leave there and they go to the mountain and the presence of God actually descends upon the mountain and his hand comes down and writes upon stone tablets to give the people exactly what they need to live life with him, to commune with God. And then he rains down food from heaven, manna from heaven that they might eat. He leads them to a land that he has promised them, flowing with milk and honey. He has given them direction to this place by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's Spirit has moved in and among the midst of his people to see prophecies given, to see provision made. He's made ways of worship so that we could commune, so that the people of God could commune with him, worship him, come to know him, all given, provided, and ruled over by the hand of Yahweh the God of Israel. God had, in this time, never failed them in any any military campaigns, any provision of food. He had always provided water and shelter and clothing. The people of Israel had a God that met them exactly where they were at and perfectly satisfied their needs and their wants. He promised to be their God, and they would be his people He would be their king. He would be their ruler. He left nothing lacking. And yet, as time progressed, the people of Israel thought that they knew better, that there would be something better found, not in the rulership of God anymore, but the rulership of a man, of a king. They wanted to be like the other cultures. They wanted to be like the other nations because it would be better. And so they wanted to elect this king, this man. And so they chose Saul. And in choosing Saul, 1 Samuel says that they actually, in the same moment, rejected God. They thought they knew better. 
But in the end, their plan, their ideas, their own power to raise up this man, Saul, to be their king would fail. And Saul would stop worshiping the God that had led them to this place. And he would start turning to worship himself. And so instead of leaving them where they were at, God did exactly what God always does. And he stepped in and redeemed the sins of the people of Israel. And he placed a king of his own choosing upon the throne. And from the throne of David, this man, he, he set upon the throne, this God-chosen man, he established through this throne the line from which he would show his rulership, not just over the people of Israel, but over the whole of the earth. This very line from which the Messiah was promised to come and to save his people. And so today, we actually pick up the story as the long-promised Messiah, the one who has come through this line of David that God established, has come and to save his people, to save the people of Israel. And so what you think is going to happen in this climactic event as the king comes to Jerusalem doesn't actually happen. And we watch history actually repeat itself as the people of God once again reject the Lord. Jesus had come to fulfill the will of his father, to be the king and the Messiah he was purposed to be. But this is not the king that the people of Israel wanted. While his disciples in these days may have been crying Hosanna as he came into Jerusalem, in a matter of days, the masses would be crying crucify him. Israel wanted a king of their own choosing, one who looked and did exactly as they wanted. They like us, like us, so often don't, didn't want, don't want the Jesus that was before them. But they wanted one that they can control, who would do exactly what they wanted. But providentially and in his grace, Jesus did not come to follow our plan or to do what we wanted him to do. Jesus came to rule and to save in a different way. And this is precisely why the people of Israel ended up rejecting him. Jesus is a better king and savior than we could ever make him because he is God. Even by just entering into Jerusalem, do we see Jesus coming with this God-given, God-ordained purpose? Right? It says in verse 28 there in Luke 19, it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So at this moment, we find, as we look at the scriptures, we find Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Jesus, in this moment, was seeking to be a different king than Israel wanted or thought they were getting. For for months, Jesus had purposely stayed away from Jerusalem, it says in the scriptures. But there came this moment where where Jesus looked at his disciples, and he says he, he set his face towards Jerusalem for a very specific purpose. He came for one reason. And and in chapter 18, just the chapter previous to what we read, um, starting in verse 31, it says this, and this is Jesus telling his disciples why he's coming. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, And will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. See, Jesus did not come into Jerusalem to save his own life, to set himself up as the king that they wanted. He actually came to give it. 
the people of Israel and Jerusalem, they wanted this king that would come in power and in might. They wanted some man to come and free them from the rule and oppression and authority of Rome that was sitting over them, not free them from sin. They only understood victory in terms of forcefulness, of dominance, of power. But Jesus came in humility. He came in servanthood. He came to die. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, as we see in verses 30 through 34 going on. He came riding in on a donkey. He did not come riding in on a war horse. He came to bring peace. His triumph in this moment His purpose in coming would not be found in militaristic victory. Jesus is a better king and savior than Israel or we could ever make him because he had a greater purpose. He didn't come, Jesus did not come to rule over men. He already did that. He came that he might rule over hearts. Real justice for the oppression that the Israelites felt would not be found in their own means. See, the people of Israel were only considering things in terms of this world and only what they could see. And they were concerned for their life here and now and the circumstances that were going on where they were at. And like so many of us, they were only concerned with what could be seen. But like placing a band-aid over an infected wound, this was not actually going to cure their problem. Being free from Rome was not going to actually give them the freedom they really wanted. Because under that band-aid of so-called freedom, there would be something working below the surface that would actually be killing them. And while Jesus was absolutely concerned about the physical well-being of his people, I mean, you just think back to the last few weeks of Luke as we've watched Christ come into the midst of his people and heal person after person. He is absolutely concerned with the physical well-being of his people. There's a reality that these miracles, though, they, they were only ever meant to point to a greater sickness and a greater healing. You see, Jesus didn't come to save us from a sickness of discomfort or of pain sickness of oppression. He didn't come for that. Jesus came to save us from the cancer of sin that is destroying our souls. He has come to defeat sin and its rule over our hearts. He has come that we might have life and not just life here and now, but life eternally and life abundant. We sometimes get so caught up in the trappings of this world and everything that's going on that we seem to forget the purpose for which Christ came into this world. He didn't come to give us health, wealth, and prosperity. And while many of us believe that we don't actually have a prosperity gospel, as I really considered the truths of this, there was some real conviction and convicting thoughts that I had because I asked myself the question, is the lack of any of those things, because I don't have health, wealth, and prosperity, do I see that as punishment from God? Is it because I didn't do enough, because I didn't have enough faith, Because I didn't live rightly enough. And is this punishment upon my life because I didn't? If that is the case in your own heart like my own, there's a reality that there's a prosperity gospel that is living deep within our souls, thinking that that is why Christ came. To make our circumstances in this life better. 
But the battle that Christ came to fight, the the problem he came to fix was not being healthy, wealthy, or prosperous. That's not it. Our war and battle on this earth, the battle Christ came to fight was one that wasn't against flesh and blood. It wasn't against the things of this world. It was a battle against sin, against our flesh, against Satan. And you think about it, human trafficking is definitely an issue in this world as you see men and women enslaved to other men and women. But the reality is is that Jesus did not come just so that people would not be enslaved sexually to men and women in this world. He came that the slave, the man, and the woman would all be saved from an eternal life in hell separated from God. He came that they might be freed from the slavery and oppression of sin that sat over their hearts. There's a reality that there's people in this city today whose bellies need to be filled with food because they haven't eaten. They haven't had a meal in days. But what good is it to fill a heart with or a belly with food if in the end the person dies eternally and their heart is eternally empty of Jesus? What good is that? That's not the purpose Jesus came for. And don't hear me advocating for not doing these ministries. These are good things. These are Christ-given, God-given ministries in this world. But don't think that the battlefront is primarily there. Jesus did not come to save bodies, men and women's bodies. He came to save their hearts. That is the purpose for why Jesus came to this earth. The mercy and the kindness that we show through these ministries, just like Christ did in his healing the sick and the poor, they are bridges from this world to the hearts of men and women. They are a means, they are a vehicle for bringing eternal eternal salvation and restoration to all things. Church, don't just fill a belly with food. Fill it with food and then use that as an opportunity to fill their hearts with Jesus Christ. Jesus was a better king than Israel wanted than we could ever want because he came with a much greater purpose than anything we ever had. He is a much better king. But it wasn't just his purpose that was better. Jesus' plan was better as well. If you look at verses 30 through 34 that we read earlier in chapter 19 of Luke, it recounts how the disciples came to find a donkey that Jesus would ride on into Jerusalem. And it goes on to say that they would place their own coats upon the back of the donkey. And then it says that they actually would place Jesus upon the back of that donkey. They saw him as king. And they wanted to give him honor, do a king as best as they could see and the plan they had for him, for him to complete. The plan they had for him to see him as their physical king. But in reality, Jesus rode a donkey, not as a fulfillment to the plan of man, but as a fulfillment to prophecy and the plan of God. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this. This is the prophecy he came to fulfill. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This was an act in submission to the plan and the will of the Father. This act was part of the plan that was set in motion before time began. The Messiah, the Christ, would come one day to save his people. And this wasn't something being made up as they went. 
If you read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or numerous other passages in the scriptures, you'll see a picture painted of a servant of God the Father. A suffering servant. A man of sorrows that would come. He would come in pain and mocking and agony. He would come in humbleness and servanthood. And he would fulfill the will of the Father to save his people. And yet, instead of knowing the will of God for the Messiah, as he had given them in the Old Testament, the people of Israel cared only at some level for what they wanted the Christ to be, the Messiah to be. Their will was to have a king that would free them from their oppression, free them from outside authority, because in the end, that would bring them greater happiness, right? Make them feel better. But the truth is, is that if you read the whole of the Old Testament... That's totally not true. So you think about all the times that God provided for the people of Israel, all the provision he made, all the things he did to set Israel up so that there would never be anything they would ever need to know him, live with him, be satisfied by him. Not even just in terms spiritually, but physically. God never, he did all of this to provide for the people of Israel. And what you see time and time and time again is they get to the end of it and they start grumbling. They start complaining. There's got to be something better than what we're having right now. They think that this life is going to make them happy. The things in this life will make them happy. We think we have the better plan here. We think we would make better decisions. We think we would actually maybe be the better king. We would be the better ruler, the better God. But consider for just a moment what would have happened had the plan of man succeeded in this moment, in this time. Sure, for a period of time, there may have been freedom for the people of Israel, and they would have, thousands of people, many would have experienced some better quality of life. They would have enjoyed what they may have been doing for a time. But when the normalcy of that set in, there would be something better, and they would begin grumbling once again. And beyond that, the millions upon millions upon millions of souls that Jesus Christ came to die and save would be eternally damned to hell. They would have no hope of salvation, no hope of ever knowing God. Had the, man, the plan of man succeeded, salvation would not be an option for us through Jesus Christ. We are so often short-sighted in our plans and what we see and what we're setting forth in comparison with an eternal God. But in his grace, Jesus isn't like us. Jesus didn't come to fulfill his own plan, to make his own decisions, to rule as his own sovereign God. Jesus is a better king and savior because he came and lived in submission to the will of the Father not ours. And this is not just a better plan. It is the best plan. We see this to be true because Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this, for my thoughts, this is God talking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, speaking of sending Christ and what he has done, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has had a plan from before the foundations of the world, and he has been working to see the Messiah, the King, come. It's his plan. It's what he's been doing from before the foundations of the world. And unlike us, not once, not one single time has he failed. Not once has God dropped the ball. Not once has he had something, has something slipped his mind or been overlooked. He had promised to send a Messiah and he had promised to save his people. But the people of Israel didn't trust his plan. They couldn't see it, they couldn't understand it, or control it, and so they tried to make their own. And in the end, as their plan to set Christ up as a king did not work, they made a new plan, and instead, the the plan of man crucified and killed the Son of the Most High God. It's what it accomplished in the end of things. As we look at God's plan and we think about trying to see it and understand it, it's kind of like this this optical illusion. And I don't know if you guys remember these. Um, They used to be at the bottom of uh, the paper and the comics at the bottom, and they were this swirl and mess of colors and lines. And and, uh, if you stared at them and focused just right, out of that would come and pop up this 3D picture, right? And you'd see something different in the the mess of the colors. And in much the same way as we look at this life, Sometimes it just seems to be this mass and chaos, swirl of pain and heartache, of happiness and joys, of sadness and sorrows. And we just can't quite seem to see the plan behind it all. It's hard for us to understand. It just doesn't seem clear. But just like with those optical illusions, your focus has to be right for you to see what's truly going on. I think so often our focus, like the people of Israel, is so set upon ourselves, upon our troubles, upon our circumstances and our life, that we have trouble truly focusing on the plan and the mission of God. And so life and ultimately our worship becomes about me and what I'm trying to accomplish, or at the very least what I'm trying to avoid It becomes about keeping myself safe and secure and comfortable at almost any cost. And in the end, the mission of God goes out of focus. And what comes into focus is this mission of me. And sometimes what we need to do in the midst of the trouble and the chaos of life as we're trying to figure it all out is just take a step back. And for a moment, see if we can see where our focus is. See where the trajectory and the mission of our life is headed. So I have just a few questions I'd like to ask of people as as we do discipleship, as, as we lead. There's questions we ask of people's hearts that I think are very telling, even though they're simple, of where our focus is set. And so I'll start by asking the first question we ask is, where are you spending your time? And it's not so much about being busy. God created us to work. He actually created us to be busy at some level, to go to bed tired. He created us to work. But maybe a better question is, how are you spending that time that you're busy? Is that time spent 
trying to earn something from God or to build your own kingdom, to make yourself safe, to make yourself secure, to make yourself happy? Is it about you? Or in all that you're doing, in all the time that you spend, is it bringing focus and clarity to the glory of God in your life and to what he's doing? Is your time spent worshiping him or worshiping yourself? Second question, where are you spending your money? Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They tend to match up and line up. And so if you want a really good breadcrumb trail about where your heart is, follow your money. Go look at your bank statement. See where you're spending your money. And I promise you, you'll probably find a clearer focus about what you're worshiping and giving your life to. Some other quick questions. Where, where do you spend your energy What kind of relationships are you trying to build? Do you come home tired at the end of the day because you spent so long trying to make people think you look good in front of them? Or because you made God look glorious? Because you wasted yourself for the sake of the glory of God in this life? In your relationships, are you more concerned about, um, in in terms of your family even, are are you spending time with your family in such a way that they understand that God is the most important thing in your life or that they are? Are they the thing you're worshiping? Or is God the thing you're worshiping? Or do your friends know? Do the people you spend the most amount of your time and relational capacity on, do they know that God is the most important thing in your life? Or do they think they are? Or you are? Just some simple questions to maybe bring into focus. Where is my focus? Where is my mission? Where am I headed? What do I care about? And I'm not saying that figuring these things out will make it very clear about how we're supposed to live our life or what the plan of God is for our life. I mean, you just look at Job as an example. The dude had no clue what was going on. And it wasn't because he wasn't asking those questions. He just didn't know. So I'm not saying that you're going to figure it out in the midst of that. But like those optical illusions, when you're staring at it, I could stare at it for five to ten minutes and not see a picture there, but I promise you there's still a picture there, whether I can see it or not. And in the same way, as we think about the plan of God for our lives, while in the chaos of life it seems hard to understand and unclear about what it's really about, I promise you it's still there. His word, he himself is He is faithful to the very end. He is accomplishing his plan. It may not look like it. It may not seem like it. It may not be clear to you, but God is accomplishing exactly what he purposed to accomplish, whether you can see it or not. He is that faithful. He is that good. He is that sovereign. He is that powerful. That is the king and the God which we worship. No matter what may be going on, we can put our trust in the sovereign one, the God who is always faithful. He's not just a God who's faithful to a better plan, but he is a God who brings us a better victory. If you would read with me, this is the end of the passage we read at the beginning. Verse 36 of of Luke 19 says this, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The final verses of this passage 
as we hear Christ coming in and his disciples declaring who they see him to be. They're very reminiscent of a time in Israel when David entered into Jerusalem, finally seen as the ruling and reigning king, victorious. And the people wanted him to be the king. And so these palm branches that you see laid down on the road for Jesus, symbolic of victory, meaning it's already been won. And so literally as they're paving the roads with palm branches, they're saying they're paving the road to victory for Jesus Christ as he comes. They wanted him and everyone to know they saw him as the king that would bring them victory, earthly victory. They would win in this life. Things would be better. Their circumstances would be fixed. The cry, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord, was from Psalm 118. This was what was declared back in the times as the king would enter into Jerusalem to come to the temple to worship. And the people would gather around and declare this of the king because he was established by God. This man was put there by God. They knew that Jesus was from God. Blessed is the man who comes in the name of the Lord. They were recognizing in this de- this declaration that Jesus was from God. They saw him as a man sent from God to come and win their victory here and now. This is what the people of Israel truly wanted. He was the one coming in the name of the Lord. And yet, while they saw him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they never actually once saw him as the Lord. But this is who he was and ultimately why they would reject him. I mean, even his disciples that are lining the streets, while they may not be the same mob and mass crying, crucify him, in the end they would run away. They would lose heart. They would leave him and forsake him. Jesus claimed to be from God. Jesus in this life also claimed to be God. And this would, in these final days, lead to his death. And yet, even here, we can see that Jesus was not denying his divinity. I mean, as you look at the end of these verses where you see the Pharisees step in, and they look at Jesus and tell, tell him, tell your disciples to stop telling them, telling you that you're God. You're declaring in this moment that you're God. You're from God. Tell them to stop. That's not who you are. And they're getting angry about it. And Jesus looks at them and says, but if they didn't, even the rocks would cry it out. And why is that? Because that was his title, whether they gave it to him or not. Jesus was the king and the ruler already of the universe. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus, by his word, upholds all that is in the universe. By his kingly declaration and and decree, all that we know in this world that exists and is, is there because he, he decreed it to be that way. John 1 tells us that it wasn't just God the Father that was there in the beginning as he created man. Jesus, the word, was there creating with him. And so Jesus actually helped create us. He was our ruler. He was our king. This is who he was. Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And so the cries of Israel, the cries of his disciples, unknowingly, weren't declaring what they actually wanted in a king. They were declaring what already was. 
They were not ushering in a king into their midst. They were ushering into their midst the king who was, who is, and who is to come. And this king, the God-man, didn't come to bring just some earthly victory. He came to win a much greater victory for us. The, the whole of this passage, as you read about Jesus entering into Jerusalem, is just full of imagery from the Old Testament. And so as I see this declaration of victory, I can't help but think back to these wars that Israel fought. All the way up to this place where, where King David reigned and ruled. And up to that point, as you look at the people of Israel as a nation, there wasn't necessarily anything about them that would make them stand out or even win in any kind of war. In terms of numbers, they didn't really have it. In terms of fighters, they didn't have that either. And usually they didn't have position in the midst of it. But what the people of Israel had that nobody else had was they had a God that fought for them. Time and time again, if you read through the scriptures in the Old Testament, it says that God fought for Israel. He was the champion. He was the victor. In fact, multiple times are accounted where God doesn't even have the people of Israel fight. He he tells them to stand firm and be silent. Or he sends out the worship team and the choir ahead of them and says, how about you go sing a song and stand there and, and watch me win. Watch me win the victory for my people. And, and maybe my favorite, one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament comes in this same type of moment where the people of Israel have just left, is, or left Egypt and they're, they're headed out, but all of a sudden their backs are against the wall as they come to the Red Sea and they realize there's nowhere for them to go. There's nowhere for them to turn. They've got the water and the sea in front of them, millions of them, and then they've got Pharaoh's army bearing down upon them to come and kill them, to destroy them, to slaughter them. And so I'm sure there is this fear and this panic and and this chaos that's beginning to ensue and it's palpable and nobody knows what to do. And in this moment, Moses turns around to the people and he says this, fear not, stand firm. And I think I would tell Moses, you're crazy. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord, in the scriptures, it's capital L-O-R-D, meaning Yahweh, he will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And so in this moment, God parts the Red Sea, and the people of Israel cross on dry ground, and as Pharaoh's army comes, they watch the Lord win the victory for them as he crushes them below the waves that he has just split. And while Israel may not recognize it in this moment in the same way, there was a Red Sea moment that was approaching as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. They saw their oppressor again as only a physical force, only as Rome they were afraid he was, Rome was coming to destroy them and oppress them and win over them again. But there was a much bigger Red Sea moment going on because as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enters into Jerusalem, what we see here is Satan leading the Son of God to a place where it looks like there is no hope, where it looks like there is nothing but for Satan, the evil one, the deceiver, the serpent, to win. There is no help There is nothing for us to do but watch the Son of God die. 
But in this moment, in this moment upon which Jesus comes, he, Jesus, the greater and the better Israel, he's not facing the fear and the panic that Israel faced. He's not grumbling or complaining, but he is standing firm and resolute in the purpose for which God sent him. But instead, as we see our Savior enter Jerusalem and days later, we see Jesus enter in like a lamb led to slaughter upon the cross. And so our Savior opened not his mouth. He was silent. As he, the Lord, by the plan and the purpose of the Father, fought for us. Our Lord and Savior, he fought for us on this day as he walked in. And he didn't just win a salvation for the people of Israel. He won a salvation for the whole of mankind. Jesus won us a greater and better victory in this moment than we could have ever imagined. They wanted freedom and victory in the terms of this world, but he gave them victory eternally. He split the seas wide open that we could walk right through to him and become his children, become children of the Most High God, not slaves to fear any longer. That's what Jesus won for us. We, we, we refuse today to accept who Jesus is, what he is. We want him to be a God that fixes our circumstances or does that we, stuff that we want him to do. We want him to make it easier to be a Christian or at the very least bless us with some earthly things because we've done what you asked, right? We lived a good life. We believed in you. We went to church. We read our Bibles. We did the right things. So can you just give us a little blessing, right, in terms of earthly things like some kind of Santa who's just asking for our belief and checking the list twice to make sure that we did what he asked us to do. We just want Jesus to come and give us stuff. We want him to give us things, and it may not always be material things, but it is usually all about us. But graciously and lovingly, Jesus didn't come to give us stuff. He didn't come to give us this world or the things of this world. Jesus came, in fact, to give us himself. He came to reverse the rule of the things of this world that have dominion over us. Because you see, when the things of this world all of a sudden begin determining our happiness or our purpose, that they start, that our circumstances start, start determining our lives, all of a sudden, the things that we were sent in the, image of man, in the image of God as man to come and rule and have dominion over, like Adam, they all of a sudden have rule and dominion over us. They become the things that we spend our time and our money on. They become the things that we actually fear losing the most. The things we love more than anything else in this world. And all of a sudden, this little mutiny and war that begins in our heart is over. And there's a new king, and there's a new ruler, and this world wins, and our sin wins, and our flesh wins, and, and Satan wins. But as we see Jesus come in to Jerusalem in Luke 19, as we declare and read about his triumphal entry, the truth is, is that that rule that has taken over the throne of our hearts 
to his, his entry is a declaration that it's only meant to be temporary, that it doesn't have to be this way forever. It's just a small chapter in the grand redemptive story of our life and all of mankind in this world. It's a part of the plan for the fullness of time that God might be the most glorified, that his glory might reign and rule in even greater and even more wonder and beauty and amazement in our lives. In greater majesty, Jesus came to reverse this rule of this world over us that he might rule once again upon the throne of our hearts, that he might flip the things of this world upon its head and again reign as the king that he was meant to be. He came to be the one that we love the most, the one that we fear the most. He came to be the one that we would give up all of our lives, all of our energy, all of our money for He came, Jesus Christ came to be the rightful king. He came to win us a better victory and Jesus is a better king and savior because he is God. He didn't just win us a victory here and now. He won us a victory for him that he might bring us to himself. St. Augustine is quoted as saying this, If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. So the question is today, in light of that, what Jesus are you receiving today? Is he exactly only what you could ever dream or imagine or want him to be, or is he so much more than that? Is he a God of your own making and controlling, or is he the God that rules your heart? And if he isn't that God that rules your heart, if he isn't so much more than you could ever imagine, then it might not be Jesus that you're worshiping today. It might be yourself. And to be honest and truthful, we all find ourselves there at some point in time or another. It's where we all were. It's where I find myself often. It's myself that I worship and not Jesus. But today, this week, in this time, we come to celebrate and remember that the most powerful being in the universe came and died so that we don't have to do that. That we don't have to worship ourselves. We don't have to reject the true king. That's why he came. Just like he did with Israel, God has come through Jesus to redeem our sin of trying to make ourselves God. To set up a new king, to do something what we think is better. And he's come like he did back then to redeem that sin and set upon the throne a better king, a better savior, a better God than we could ever imagine or put there. He's come to redeem Come to redeem us. All the the burdens that you feel like you bear from trying to live up to this standard before him. All the boxes you're trying to check, all the things you're trying to do to, to make him like you, to be better before him, to show yourself as better. Jesus came to redeem that. He came and fulfilled every single law He came and checked every single box. He came and bore every single burden that you don't have to bear one ever again. He came to make you his. 
You're not better because of what you've done. You're better and best because of what Jesus has done. He came that you might know that true joy and satisfaction isn't found in this life of living by your own plan and your own rules and doing your own thing. But actually true joy and satisfaction is found in living humbly in service and servanthood and submission to the will of the Father God. He came to prove that a life on mission for God and his glory, they have a reward that far surpasses the trinkets the circumstances, the things of this life. He came to give us himself. Jesus came to give us God. Things much better than the things of this world. Eternally better. Jesus came with a better purpose. He came with a better plan and he won us a much better victory. So brothers and sisters, who today, on this Palm Sunday, as we Consider the entry of our king. Who is the king you're receiving into your midst? Who is this king that you want? Is it Jesus or is it a God of your own making? If you would bow your heads with me and pray. Father God, we we come with, with heads bowed. Father, not because it earns us anything before you, but because we want to recognize you not just um, in our words or in our hearts, but physically even, Father. We want to recognize you as king. We want to bow before you as the sovereign one, as the better king, as the better savior. We want to come and praise your name this morning because you have worked and fought and won victory for us greater than anything we could have ever imagined. We thank you, God, for fighting for us. We thank you, Jesus, for coming in submission to the will of the Father and his plan with a greater purpose in your humility and in your death, the death that we deserved, the death that should have been ours. We thank you for winning that for us. Thank you for being a better Savior. We ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you just drill into our hearts. You bore down into our souls and speak truth and grace into our hearts. As we think about Jesus and the gospel and what he's come to do for us, what he won for us, Father, speak it to the depths of who we are, that we might not just know it to be true, but believe it, Father. We might hold on to it and grasp onto it for dear life. As it is Jesus, you who is our life. Holy Spirit, move in and among our midst today and send us from this place proclaiming the victory that you won. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.